You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. All right, can you get all this garbage out of my way so I can preach a sermon? Father, thank you. Uh, Titus chapter 2 this morning, if you'd get your Bibles there. Uh, just as we normally do, we'll read our text together. We're continuing in this series through Titus. Uh, <clears throat> it's not a real lengthy journey through the book, uh, but we're, we're trying to uh, really understand what the Lord would have to say to us through all these things. And so far, we've had this a real heavy emphasis on church leadership and the church's doctrine the importance of the church having sound doctrine and even correcting and silencing those people who are opposing sound doctrine so that the doctrine of the church will be pure, the things that we understand from the scriptures, that, uh, that what we believe about God is what God would have us believe about him. And so now we come to chapter 2, and Paul in the first 10 verses says this, if you'd follow along with me and then we'll pray for some help. He says, but as for you, speaking to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let's pray for help here. God, we need you. We look to you. Help us, please, by your Holy Spirit. Please help us in, in the next forty, forty five minutes, whatever we've got, Lord, to believe what is true about you and to apprehend it in such a way that it would actually become what fuels our lives, that we would be changed by what we believe. We understand, Lord, from your word that we can't change ourselves, but we seek you, Lord. We seek you through your word. Holy Spirit, please teach us this word. Please exalt Jesus. Please convict our hearts. Lead us to righteousness, lives that would please you and honor you, glorify you and adorn the doctrine of God. Help us to not just be hearers, but doers of the word, that we would do it from faith, trusting in your grace. We need you, God. Please help us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as, as I said, uh, Paul starts this letter to Titus. Uh, Titus has been um, in a church planting effort on the island of Crete, which is just right in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea to the south of Greece. Crete has a really bad reputation for being a rough place. We've, we've joked about it being the biker joint of nations. It's just a, it's just a place where there's, uh, there, there's not this general sense of morality uh, that you may find in some other places where the Lord's been gracious 
like that. It's, it's just a, a hard place to be, and it's a hard place for the gospel. Hard hearts. So here's Titus in the middle of this church planting effort. The Paul, of course, has already traveled through this place. He's seen the gospel take root in people's hearts. Churches have sprung up where believers have gathered together. And Titus now is being sent back through as a matter of first importance to preach the gospel and to establish leadership in these churches. So he's, he's working with the, the local believers in all these different places so that he can see elders, teams of elders who are mature, uh, godly representatives of, of what it is that Christ died for and is doing in the lives of his people. These aren't perfect people, but they're people who are sincerely following Jesus and there's enough fruit from their life that it's, it's evident that they have matured to a level they can lead others. That it was so important that these leaders be in place and then what are these leaders doing? Well, there's a lot of character attributes of these leaders, a lot about who they are, but there's very little about what they do. It's not a job description as much as a character description. And in the job description, which is very short, it's just that they must be able to teach. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So the key role of the elders in the church is to establish sound doctrine. And doctrine is just the truth about God. It's what God has revealed about himself. So these elders, these men, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, hold firm to sound doctrine, and be able to give instruction to others, even to the point that they are contradicting and correcting people who oppose sound doctrine. Purifying the doctrine of the church is critical. So, Titus 1.16 if you would look at it with me. Titus 1.16, speaking about these people who oppose sound doctrine, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works, by their lives. And now in contrast, in chapter 2, Paul is going to describe to Titus what it looks like for us to actually know God and to proclaim him by our works. So instead of just professing, instead of just professing to know God, but then our lives betray our doctrine, we actually know God and our lives affirm our doctrine. And he's going to describe through some different categories, and which includes basically anyone of adult age here, He's going to describe kind of what that looks like. So in, in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul establishes that an elder must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. And sound doctrine is just the truth that God has revealed about himself, which we could also just call the Bible. God has revealed who he is in the scriptures. The Old Testament, the New Testament gives a full picture of who God is and what God is about, the things he cares about, the things that he's doing the things that are important to him, and how he's accomplishing those things. Of course, we know that the gospel is at the heart of all of God's plans, what God cares about, who God is. The gospel demonstrates the character and the nature and the will of God at its apex of how, the, how who God is intersects with our world. The gospel demonstrates that and declares that, and it reveals God to be gracious, to be holy, to be kind, to be patient and merciful, but also to be just. That he's not going to overlook sinfulness, he's going to pay for it. He's going to reconcile sinners to himself justly, and he did that by sending Jesus into the world to die for sinners so that Jesus on the cross takes our place the cross that belonged to us and the penalty of God's wrath against our sin was poured out on Christ so that our sin was dealt with justly. It wasn't overlooked. It wasn't swept under the rug. It was dealt with. It was punished. But it was punished in Christ so that we could receive grace, a gift we didn't deserve. This is the gospel. Jesus gets all of our sin. 
We get all of his righteousness, and that righteousness makes us reconciled with God so that we can have a relationship with a holy God rather than him being repelled and repulsed by us. This is the core of God's heart, the gospel. So it's critical to the life of the church that we understand God as he has actually revealed himself, as he has actually revealed himself. This is an important thing for us all over the world, for humanity. It's, it's obviously a critical thing to understand. We need to know God as he has actually revealed himself, but particularly in the West, particularly in America. This is a difficult thing for us. It's difficult for us for a very understandable reason. In America, there are certain ideals that have been, that have been woven into the identity of the person who is a citizen of this place, and it's rugged individualism. I am who I say I am. What I believe is enough for me. What you believe is fine for you. Don't tread on me. I've got my thing. You've got your thing. All right, and, and we, can, we can all do our thing, and it's created a beautiful tapestry in terms of diversity that this place is filled with all kinds of people, living all kinds of lives, motivated by all kinds of things, so there's amazing opportunity in a place like this, but it also, if it's not extrapolated from our Christian identity, can cause us to think that God is who we think he is rather than God being who he has revealed himself to be. There's a famous theologian. His name is A.W. Tozer. He's written some great books. And one of his most famous quotes, maybe the most famous thing he ever said, is, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God and, and here's why Tozer rightly placed so much importance on what we believe about God, because God is ultimate. God created everything. He defines everything. Everything that exists owes its identity to God because he's established reality and he continues to maintain reality. Whatever is real is real because God says it is. I know that's kind of philosophical, So you math types are like, come on, break it down for me. If something is, it only is because God says so. It only exists and has its identity because God says it is what it is. If that's true, and it is, and you can't escape the logic of it, (coughs) then if you get God wrong, it's impossible for you to rightly understand any other thing. If you don't understand the creator and the one who sets reality and affirms it and maintains it continually, then you're disconnected from the source of reality and you don't understand reality. You're living in a dream world. You're making it up as you go and you're standing on a, on a real slippery slope. Sometimes you get it. Sometimes you stumble upon something that's true, but without being connected to God and understanding God as he's actually revealed himself to be, then you don't know anything. You can't know anything. You're just, at best, tripping over truth as you stumble through life. So if you get God wrong, it's impossible for you to rightly understand anything else. For instance, if your disillusionment about bad things happening in the world, you know, because there's, there's this very popular knock on God as good or God as sovereign, that how can a good God allow bad things to happen? You just turn on the TV for a day and watch it, and you'll see news stories about murder and about famine and, and about dangers and all these kinds of things. And, it, and it's a very easy thing to do with natural thinking, disconnected from the reality of God. It's a natural thing to do. We'll go, well, if God's in control and if God's good, then nothing bad would ever happen because God's good and he can stop it if he wants. So if your disillusionment about bad things happening in the world caused you to think God just kind of spun the universe into motion and then stepped back to see what would happen like some kind of cosmic 
science experiment, then you'll have absolutely no category for how to suffer with any kind of hopefulness, with any dignity, with any endurance, because none of it means anything. What's the point? What's the point of suffering and enduring it if there's nothing out ahead of you that is determined a purpose for that suffering? But if you understand the truth, as God has revealed himself to be, not just creator, but also sustainer, that he's a God who draws near to the brokenhearted, Colossians 1. In him all things hold together, Psalm 3, 5. I lay down and, and slept, I woke again, for he sustained me. That God is close, God is involved, he cares, he knows, he sees, he understands. He's not far off. He's able to rescue. If you understand that truth, you understand God as he's revealed himself to be, there's a practical implication in your life. There's a point to enduring. There's a million examples we could give about how right doctrine affects the way we live, but just connect some dots with me here. Paul says the elders of the church must give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. The unsound doctrine being taught by some of the church was a pollution of the gospel, that is adding works and adding Jewish myths to the gospel, polluting it. So the doctrine coming under attack in Crete was what God has revealed about Jesus, that is the heart of God to save sinners justly, righteously, his holiness intact and maintained, and yet reaching out to unholy people and making them his children. This was under attack. And Paul's saying, teach what accords with sound doctrine what accords with sound doctrine. Now, there's a slight variance here. He's not just saying teach sound doctrine. He's saying teach what accords with it. Accord may not be a real familiar word for you. It's just an agreement. An agreement. It jives. It works. It fits. In fact, literally the words that Paul said here in the Greek are translated what fits with sound doctrine. He isn't saying here just to teach it. He's, he's already established that sound doctrine, correct knowledge of God, especially of Jesus, is the foundation of the church. And we're the only people in the world who actually know who God is. You ever think about that? That the person who knows Jesus, who loves and follows and has faith in Christ, is the only kind of person in the world who actually knows who God is. It's almost a sad truth, isn't it? It's glorious for us, but it's terrifying for the rest of the world. So obviously it's critical, critical that we have sound doctrine, but in order to be faithful to this text, we can't just keep pounding on Got to be sound in our doctrine. Got to be sound in our doctrine. We also have to teach what accords with it. And what he's getting at here is our lives. Our lives. So our mouths can proclaim sound doctrine. But what do our lives proclaim? That's what he's getting at here. Teach people to live lives that agree with their doctrine. <coughs> Excuse me. This has been going over like a month. Terrible, I know some of y'all can identify. So he's addressing the issue of a, a, a very narrow, very particular problem that we don't escape today in the church. The issue of people believing something true about God but living as if it isn't true or as if it has nothing to do with you. So we say stuff all the time. We say stuff and then we do stuff. We say stuff like, God is sovereign, which is sound doctrine, amen? <laughs> I thought I was at church. God is sovereign, amen? That's sound doctrine. And then we freak out when our plans fall apart. Right? Listen to the statement, God is sovereign. He can't be stopped. He's not controlled by any other force. He is the controlling force. God is sovereign. So when my plans fall apart, 
what's happening? Is God losing control? It's not that God is intermittently sovereign. God's sovereign when we set it up for him. God just is sovereign. It's part of his nature, his character. It's who he is. He is constantly, forever, always, completely, categorically sovereign. When my my plans fall apart, they fall apart according to his sovereignty. But you don't know that if you don't know God's sovereign. So we don't want to live lives that betray that doctrine. (coughs) Jesus died for my sins. Sound doctrine. Amen? Jesus died for our sins, and then we're bitter at someone who hurts us. Bitter at someone who hurts us. How can that be? How can it be that a person who knows God died for them while they were still in their sins... How can that same person be bitter at someone who sins against them? It betrays our doctrine. God is worthy of my whole life. That's sound doctrine. You can't read the Bible and come to any other conclusion. God is worthy of my whole life. And then we arrange our calendars around making the most money and having the most fun. It's a total betrayal of our doctrine. It doesn't jive. It doesn't fit. It doesn't accord. So sound doctrine is necessary. It's foundational (coughs) to the life of the church. We seek it. We teach it. We dedicate ourselves to increasing in the knowledge of the Lord. (coughs) Thanks. Forgive the slurping. But if we're resistant to that same doctrine transforming our lives, we're hypocrites. And that's what Paul is teaching here. Saying if the church is going to be pure, if it's going to be a church that actually knows God and actually follows God, sincerely, authentically, in the reality that God has created, then we don't need to just know the truth, we need to live according to the truth. We need to live lives that are arranged around the truth, that are built on the truth. And any other thing is just falling short. But listen, hypocrisy is not an incurable disease. It's just not. Not for the believer, not for the person with the Holy Spirit. There's grace to cover it. There's grace to heal us from it. Jesus died for hypocrisy too. We're all falling short. We all, to varying degrees, treat doctrine like a museum. Like a really beautiful museum. With the tour guide preacher showing lots of old, incredible, impressive things on shelves and in glass cases, leading people around, and and the people are listening. "Mm, That is neat. I wish my friend was here to see that. Look at that thing. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it beautiful? But for the person who's in Christ, for the person who's been awakened by the Holy Spirit, for the person who knows the truth, knows the truth to the point that it's not just information, but it is transforming powerful truth. For the person who nearly knows Jesus, who by the Holy Spirit is being led into the truth about God, not like a museum, but like a whole new life. The glory of God's nature, the power, the purity, the grace, the faithfulness, the doctrine of God is an inwardly abiding, transforming reality. It's something that's inescapable. It can't be just checked in on. It's your life. It's a fire in the soul that just burns to ashes all of those things that we sought after and trusted in before we had Jesus. It ruins the old self. Paul elsewhere says that we should crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. That happens when you really know the truth. When you're When you're following Jesus and his spirit is leading you into depths that you didn't know were imaginable, 
to know God like that, that kind of intimacy, that kind of fellowship, that kind of awareness of God. He's greater. He's better. He's more satisfying. Like John says in in John chapter 1, the introduction of Jesus, that he's full of grace and truth. And the truth and grace of who Jesus is, is the doctrine of the church. It's all caught up in him, in his identity. We know right doctrine if we know Jesus. The more we know him, the more right our doctrine is. That's why this list of, of things, this, this list of attributes here, verses 2 through 10, I know we're still in verse 1. This list of, of things saying older men this, older women this, younger women this, younger men this, slaves this, everyone in society live like this. The reason why that list sounds a lot like a description of Jesus is because Right doctrine is a right understanding of the character and the will of God. And that's all found in Christ. He's the wisdom of God. He's the revelation of God to the world. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, the Holy Spirit, that you have and that I have because we have faith in Christ, When the spirit of truth comes, the spirit of truth. I love that Jesus named the Holy Spirit that. The spirit of truth. He will guide you into all the truth. All the truth. There's not some truth about God that's just secondary, that's just cursory, that's like, well, if you know this, you're set, and if you never knew that, well, then you'd be fine still. All of who God is is worthy of all of our attention because he's so glorious. He's so worth knowing in every possible way. So the Holy Spirit will guide us into all the truth. For he will speak not on his own authority, but whatever he hears. (laughs) Whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. So, brothers, sisters, if your faith is in Jesus, that's a good thing. And that means you have the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, and that's a good thing. It means you have the availability of truth to you, accessibility, knowability. You can understand God like the world can't understand God. But just to know who God is is not the complete plan of God for you. It's that your life would be transformed by your knowledge of God. So he tells Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. He starts with the older men. Older men here is men who are about 60 and older. So by this point in Paul's life, he's speaking about himself. Older men. Sorry if you're about 60 or older. This, it's not the same kind of negative thing that it is now. Like, old man, you know, in the first century, you go, old man. He'd be like, yes, I am an old man, worthy of your respect. And now it's just like, forget you, young man. I don't know if an old man speaks that way, but okay, here we go. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. There's something about an older man in the church that should be kind of stately, sure, respectable. Younger men can look to older men and they can say, look, you've been down this road before and I'm looking to you. Can you help me get down this road? And that older man is mature enough. He's sober enough in his mind. He's not a foolish, silly person. He's not trite. He's not flippant. He's been kind of beaten up enough by life and he's got enough wounds and enough scars that he understands life is difficult and it takes faith in God. You've been through enough to feel the weight of it. You're dignified by that. 
You have a dignity that accompanies sober-mindedness. Self-controlled. You're kind of done with the young man's game. You know what God's about. You know what life is about. And you're not wasting time on silly things. Sound in faith. By this point, you're trusting in Jesus and you know nothing else is worthy of your faith. In love, you've witnessed the power of love and in steadfastness, learned to persevere. Paul is saying, this is what the church needs from older men, to be the older men, to be the guys who've been there, the guys who know by now, the guys who are willing to give an ear and speak, say hard things, say comforting things. You know, we, we always joke about guys who get really old, and I'm a little bit jealous of guys who are like really old because they just don't care anymore what you think about what they think or feel. They're just like, look, this is what it is, all right, deal with it. I don't have enough time to kind of tiptoe around your emotions. This is just it. There's something on your face. <laughs> That's just it. And all the younger men are like, should we talk to him about it? Should we tell him? I don't want to embarrass him. The old dude's just like, something on your face, kid. And, and what we're saying here is a sanctified version of that just, that bluntness about reality and about need and about faith in God. We need that from older men. He says, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. Again, there's this stateliness about the older women in the church. Respectable, honorable, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. There's a, there's a self-control element there, just like with the older men. This, they're, they're, they're not seeking attention. They're not seeking out to be parts of special cliques and special clubs, depending on what they know about who and what happened and all these things. Not gossips, just helpful. They're able to teach what is good because they've devoted themselves to knowing what's good. And the, the outworking of them applying themselves to knowledge of the Lord and growing up and seeking to become mature is this, so that they would be able to train young women. Train young women. A very practical thing here. Older women, what do we need from you? We need you to train young women, to disciple them. You've got young women who are floundering at home. They're scared. They're overwhelmed. They don't know where to go next. They don't know what to do in this kind of situation. Older women, you've been there before. Speak into it. Train, disciple. <clears throat> Look at the list of things that young women need to be trained in. To love their husbands and to love their children. To be self-controlled. Self-control again. To be pure. That is the purity of their sexual desire only for their husband, also the purity of their heart towards the Lord. Working at home, not, not, this is talking about married women now, it's not just young women in general, but speaking specifically to married young women, to not neglect the home, the responsibilities at home. This is a really controversial thing to teach now because the feminist movement has said, look, women, you can be whatever you want to be. And the Bible says, well, you've got to be what God's designed you to be. That's, just, that's a hard thing in our culture, that the primary identity of a young married woman who has children is to devote herself to the health of her home. And it doesn't mean that it precludes you from working outside the home because the Proverbs 31 woman that we all love is in the marketplace all the time, Right? I mean, she's making things and then going out and selling things and providing, helping support her family. So it's not at all that the Bible precludes young women from working outside the home, but of a matter of first importance of devotion, God has designed young women who are married with children to care for their homes, to be kind, to be submissive to their own husbands, not to just men but to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Man, young women. Young women. The stakes, right? 
I mean, have you ever thought about your place in the church, older women training younger women and younger women living lives that accord with sound doctrine? Have you ever thought that if you are selfish and you fail to really embrace your identity, the way God's designed you to live and operate and serve, that the word of God could be reviled because of your disobedience? This is not a game, young women. This is not a game. It's not that, that the, the men of the church will do all the important stuff and we just hope that you're doing a good job with the kids until we take over. This isn't just changing diapers and wiping noses. The heart behind it, to love God through it, to worship God through it, to do it as an overflow of your sound doctrine is something that will either affirm or deny the doctrine of God. You're so important to the life of the church. We need you. We need you. Verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And then he moves on and speaks to Titus. Does that mean he has very little to say to young men? No. It means this, that there's basically one glaring, enormous, gross, egregious problem with young men. That they don't control themselves. Young men are out of control, driven by passions and desires, <coughs> unable to just rein in their passions and live for God. Single-minded devotion to soundness of doctrine and lives that accord with it. Young men, we need you to follow Jesus. We need you to crucify your flesh to abandon the hope of the world and to look only to Jesus. Young men, you are critically important to the life of the church. And Paul says, if there's one thing I want you to teach these young men, Titus, it's to learn self-control, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's not that now we're, we're going, okay, there's my spiritual life and there's the thing that the Holy Spirit does in me and then there's me just getting my stuff in order. Me, just, st just stop acting like a child and get yourself under control. That's not what's being said here. It's that fruit of the Spirit that you lean into and trust and devote yourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life so that fruit of that would be you're a person who can control yourself. You're not just driven around by passions. You're not driven around by the next thing and the thing that caught your attention. You're disciplined in your pursuit of God and your service to the church. Notice again that self-control had a place in every single one of these. Older men are to be self-controlled. Older women are to not be slanderers and slaves to much wine, which is being those things is a symptom of a lack of self-control. Younger women are to be self-controlled. Young men are to be self-controlled. Again, that self-control is an overflow of sound doctrine. You actually know who God is, and that has caused you to actually seek to align your life with him, to devote yourself to the truth of who he is. Verse 9. I love verse 9. Verses 9 and 10 here have such powerful gospel implications that if we actually believe what God says about himself and that becomes a part of our lives, look at the kind of thing that can happen bondservants or slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are not to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, that is stealing, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. He's speaking to people who are owned by other people. Owned. And, 
And in America, we have a really dark history with slavery, don't we? That people were, people were captured, taken against their wills, set across the Atlantic Ocean, shackled, vomiting on each other, dying of diseases, thrown overboard from ships, brought here to be enslaved and owned by other human beings like chattel, like they're nothing, like they're not even human beings. And there is nothing less difficult about this slave, about his life, about his circumstances than the kind of slavery we're aware of in this country. This is a person who's owned completely by another human being. And Paul says, if you really believe what God says about himself, you can be so different from the world that you could sincerely with a heart full of faith, obey your earthly master in everything without arguing, without stealing from him. You could do so from faith in Christ. And that the result of that kind of faith, that kind of outworking of soundness of doctrine would cause our doctrine to be adorned Adorned, it looks beautiful because of how your faith has worked out in your circumstances. Listen to what just happened. The master now needs the slave to live out his sound doctrine. The master is in need because the gospel will be proclaimed who God is, his identity, his character, his nature, his grace will be revealed to the sinful master through the submission of the slave. The slave is reaching down to help his master, his dead, needy, broken master. He needs that slave. He's counting on that slave. And if the slave fails in his mission to actually live out the doctrine about God, the truth about God, the master will miss out on the opportunity to see God's doctrine revealed. Again, the implications of this. What if the older men aren't sober-minded, they're not dignified, they're not self-controlled, they're not sound in faith and love and in steadfastness? What if the older women in the church aren't reverent in behavior? What if they're slanderers and they're drunkards? And what if they don't teach what is good because they don't even know it? And what if they don't train the young women to love their husbands and their children and to be self-controlled? What if they don't teach them to be pure and to work at home and to be kind and submissive to their own husbands? Well, here's the first result. The word of God might be reviled. What if the younger men aren't self-controlled? What if they're not devoted singularly to living out the implications of the gospel? What if Titus being in a critical place of leadership, did not show himself in all respects to be a model of good works? What if he wasn't showing integrity in his teaching and dignity in his teaching? What if he didn't have soundness of speech, truthfulness, correctness of speech? Well, then we see an opponent may be able to put him to shame and have something evil to say about the ministers of the gospel. What if bondservants aren't submissive to their own masters and everything? What if they're not well-pleasing? What if they're not working as unto Christ and not for men? What if they argue? What if they steal? What if their faith isn't in Christ, but their faith is in a change in circumstance? Well, we can see what could happen that the doctrine of God our Savior may not be adorned. He wouldn't be recognizable. He wouldn't be understandable. And this doesn't detract at all, please, because we, we started out about you know, an, an example of God's sovereignty and our belief and our faith, our trust in God's sovereignty. Of course we believe in God's sovereignty to draw people to himself in spite of our failures. But the Holy Spirit 
will not allow for complacency here. There's no room for complacency. We are called to live lives that agree with, fit with, accord with the things that we believe about God. And if we don't, it actually matters. It matters whether or not we align our lives with the truth of God. And it's, again, not that God is sitting in heaven on a throne going, ah, I wanted to save this person, but this Christian failed. So I guess that person's going to hell. I'm forced to judge them rather than giving them grace in Christ. It's not as though God is enslaved to our performance and our excellence and our ability to follow him and obey him steadfastly. God is not a slave to anyone. God is sovereign. But God has sovereignly chosen to elect us all, his church, to be the harbingers, the carriers, the messengers of his gospel in the world. And not only messengers by our words and what we believe in our minds, but how we live. We live in such a way that Jesus is demonstrated to the world and God wants to and plans to use that. So that the word of God may not be reviled. So that an opponent may not be able to put us to shame and say evil things about us. So that in everything, the doctrine of God our Savior might be adorned. It matters how we live. Uh, This can be one of two things. This could be received as a hard word that feels condemning, that feels legalistic. Like, so you're saying that if I don't do X, Y, Z, that I'm not a real Christian? Or... It could be received as a hard word that was taken directly off a page of Scripture. Just an apostle telling a church planter, make sure that this is happening. Soundness of doctrine translating into our lives in these ways. This is important. So that God will be known, so that the gospel would advance, so that people would see the doctrine of God and they would see him as glorious and beautiful and sovereign and gracious and patient. It matters. It just mattered to Paul. It mattered to Jesus. It mattered to the early church and it matters to the world. So is it a hard word? Yeah, yeah, it's a hard word. It's a hard word for me, again, because... I fit into this young man category and I feel that one of my primary failures in life is to be a self-controlled person because I'm a young man. I still have flesh. There's weakness inside of me and that's why I want Jesus to come back. Amen? To eradicate that weakness, to eradicate that sinful tendency that prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. But here we are, with all of our indignity, all of our lack of self-control, our impurity, all of our failures, our sins, paid for by Jesus, leaving us in a very unique position in the world. People who are in Christ and who are called to demonstrate him to the world. Not perfect people, just unique people, saved people, called people. That's who we are. So, uh, just to kind of pull the curtain back a little bit, when you're preaching sermons, there's, a, you know, there's supposed to be this kind of order of things that's supposed to happen. And at some point in the sermon, usually somewhere towards the end, you're supposed to give some point of real practical application, okay? Right? If you've done any kind of preaching or teaching, you know, you don't just leave it up here in the clouds, 30,000 feet flying over, which is my tendency. <laughs> 
but there's actually some kind of thing where you land the plane and you go, see, this is how it's going to work. So you've got to do this and do this, these kinds of things. And here's what I would tell you to do. Read this again. And put yourself in the category that you belong. Older man, older woman, younger woman, younger man. I don't believe we have any bond servants in the room, although we have a lot to learn from that. Put yourself in the category that you belong in and pray, pray your soul out. Pray. Ask the Lord, seek the Lord, that he would be gracious to you, that he'd be merciful to you, that he would work so powerfully within you that you would begin to more faithfully reflect who you're called to be in Christ. If you're making a, a list of ways that you want to grow in 2017, how about this list? This isn't a bad list. This is a biblical list. Ways to grow. And by doing so, as a family of people who are broken, who are sinful, who are failing, who are weak, but who are filled with the Holy Spirit, and that all those things are being overcome in us, that we could more faithfully adorn the doctrine of God our Savior for the world. That the world around us would see us and they'd say, if God is who he seems to be in their lives, that's a glorious God. That's a magnificent God. That's a God who's beautiful, who's gracious, who's patient, who draws near to the brokenhearted, who loves, who perseveres, who forgives. That's the kind of God I hope really does exist. Let's ask the Lord for help. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.